Church. Man, it is so good to be here with you guys. It has been a month or so since we were last in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been in it for almost two years. But, um, hey, we're moving right along. And uh, we're back into our series of King Jesus, and we are into a new section um, in the Gospel of Matthew. And it is the last and final section. As I've shared with you often, the Gospel of Matthew is broken up into sections or parts. And um, we have now entered into the final section in regards to the Gospel of Matthew. The previous section that we were in, that we finished a month ago, uh, was that of the predicted uh, return of the king. And, and uh, again, you, you need to remember that Matthew, he's been portraying Jesus throughout this whole time as king. He's been speaking to Jews, and so there's a lot of Old Testament in it. And so the last portion that we just covered, verses or chapter 24 and 25, had to do with the predicted return of the king. And I know that I kind of sped through chapter 25, and that was kind of on purpose that I did that only because of what I knew was coming ahead. If you were here last week when uh, Matt, uh, Mark Matthew shared, um, again, it's just kind of almost all tied in, and it's just kind of weird because what Pastor Daniel shared the week before that, what David Boberg shared, on a Thursday night, it just kind of all tied in to the end times, and uh, it was just fascinating. I know when I decided to do a whole chapter at one time, people gra- uh, gasped, thinking, no way, how can he do that? And I did it, and I, I don't know if I did it justice or not, but be that as it may, if you didn't hear him, you can go back online and listen to it. But in those two chapters, chapters 25, 24 and 25, Jesus is speaking to his disciples in what is known for us today in the Olivet Discourse. And in uh, this last and final section that we are now getting into um, is known as the death and resurrection of the king. We are now getting into the final days of Jesus. Matthew, again, portrays him as the king, and he does such an amazing job to remind the Jewish people that he's writing to that King Jesus came on their behalf to die for them. And, and, and he is now ready, this king is ready to lay down his life for his subjects, um, just for others. Um, the, the, the verse that came to mind as I was looking at this and just kind of going into this portion um, and this section reminded me of Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, where it says, But made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, the death, even the death of the cross. Because you see, King Jesus is different than any other king who has ever walked the face of this earth. Totally different. Where most kings would expect their subjects to die on their behalves, not Jesus. He comes and he humbles himself from his throne and he comes to earth and becomes obedient and takes on this form of a bond servant. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, is a bond servant for his people. He came and and he kind of gives himself over to man. 
And he brings king, the kingdom of heaven down to earth and meets man right where they're at, right? And, and, and he goes all the way through with this so that man can be forgiven of their sin. That's why he came. That's why he does all of this. And the only way it could happen is through the death and resurrection of the king. So if you are in Matthew 26, that is where we're going to start off. But you can also put a bookmark or your finger or your neighbor's finger in uh, John chapter 12. Because we're going to go over to John chapter 12 later on in our study so that we can get a fuller picture of the text that we are going to be in in Matthew. And so we want to be able to get the fuller picture. Let me remind you, as I did first service and I has, as I have before, that the gospel of Matthew does not go in chronological order. As I've shared with you, he goes in sections. And so he puts certain things in certain places that in the other gospels that might be going in a more chronological order would make sense. He kind of takes them and just kind of puts them in categories and sections. And so... Uh, this morning, what we're going to be reading will sound as if we are going in chronological order. And for the most part or part of it, we are. But for most of it, we are not. Um, and so it, it seems like it, it is, but it's not. But let's read our text this morning in uh, Matthew 26, beginning in verse 1. We will go to verse 16. It says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster uh, flax of co very costly fragrant oil. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. And when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, whenever this gospel is preached in the whole world, this, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Father, thank you for your word, God. We thank you for the privilege of being able to open it and read it. 
Father, I pray that you would help me to make sense of it for my brothers and sisters, Lord God, to preach and to share this message in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go back to the beginning of our chapter of our text here in verses 1 and 2, these two verses that start off this chapter are in chronological order from where we left off a month ago or in the previous chapter. Because of the phrase that says, when Jesus finished all these sayings, these words, when Jesus finished all these sayings, are the last of five such turning points in the Gospel of Matthew. In other words, Jesus, when he says this, he said it four other times, but when he says that throughout the Gospel of Matthew, it means that he is turning onto another topic. He is pivoting, if you will, to take us in a different direction of what he had previously been talking about to the disciples. And so when he had finished, he pivoted. And began to talk about something else. Because again, chapters 24, 25 were a different section than where we're at today. And he had been talking about the end times and what would be happening in the future. And now he gets back to, to, to what's at hand and what is going on here in our text. As soon as he had completed what we know as the Olivet Discourse, he reminds his disciples that the feast of Passover was only two days away, which meant that he was going in chronological order, as we have seen that we are in this Passion Week. We've been kind of going day by day, and we know that where he was at. Now, it's interesting because for me, as I'm reading this text, he he finished the chronological order in verse 2, and he picks it back up in verse 17. And so for me, this, this kind of changes a lot of things in, as, as I've been studying and looking at this. But, but again, going back to, to the chronological order where we're at, that he reminds his disciples, now after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be cru- crucified. Now if you remember, and it's been quite a while ago, that when Jesus and his disciples had gotten to the Mount of Olives, that more than likely, because it was such a long day of ministry that Tuesday, in particular, of the Passion Week, he had been getting tried and, or, or as far as tested and doing all these things. He, he confronts the religious leaders. He's talking to the people. And then they leave from, from uh, the, 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 the Temple Mount and go over to the Mount of Olives. As I shared with you that time, it was already evening. It was already kind of the sun was setting. And I, I, I painted this picture as, as they could see west from where they're at that the sun is setting. And so it is when they get to the Mount of Olives that he shares this discourse with them. And it was late on Tuesday. And they are in this area. So when he finished the Olivet Discourse, when he finished all these sayings, he reminds them in two days is the Passover, which would be all of Wednesday and all of Thursday. In that evening, the Passover would would start as we pick up in verse 17. That is when he sends them out to go set up the meal. In other words, the day after tomorrow... (laughs) Is the Passover, and I will be crucified around that time. 
And so it's interesting that, that as he says this about the day after tomorrow, he says, the Son of Man will be delivered up. You see, he had already told them several times that he would be dying. If you remember back in the day when we're going through the Gospel of Matthew, that when he goes up north to, to Caesarea Philippi, that is the first time that all of a sudden he begins to open up with them, saying that the Son of Man will be killed, that he will be handed over. And it is that time that, that, that Peter stands up. First he says, you know, who, who, who am I? Who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he says, oh, and by the way, I will be getting killed. And Peter says, no way, Jose or Jesus. No way, Jesus. Not on my watch. Not today. That's never going to happen. And Peter, you know, poor Peter, man, he goes from God speaking to him to, to Jesus saying, get behind me, Satan. But he tells them that he will be dying he reminds him that he is on his way to death. And so even throughout that time, from that first time, he has reminded them a few times, a couple of times at least, that he will be dying, that he will be being delivered up to the Gentiles, to, to be crucified. That word delivered up means that he will be betrayed, which means that it will come from the inside. It's an inside job, and he will be handed over to be crucified. And it's interesting because he ties all of this in with the Passover, the fact that the Passover is there among them at the same time, and he says, I will be crucified as well. In two days, Passover, in two days, I will be crucified, basically. And I kind of find it interesting that as he says this to his disciples, that there's no reaction from them. There's no response from them here. Peter, the big mouth, doesn't say a word right now saying, no way, it's not going to happen. I told you it's not going to happen. But we hear nothing. And, and as I'm looking this, I, I'm, I'm thinking, how often do we hear about the cross? How often do we hear about the sacrifice that Jesus has done for us? And it's all whole hum, you know? It's like, yeah, I've heard that, Pastor. Man, you've been talking about it. You talk about it all the time. And it almost reminds me, like these guys that Jesus is saying, no, in two days I'll be getting, I'll be getting crucified. I'll be dead. And they're like, hmm, no biggie. And, and, and I think I sometimes, you know, kind of, it, it bugs me within myself because there's times that I don't think about it like, th like that. I read through stuff because I'm reading through the word, I'm reading through the word, and he's getting crucified, he's getting all these stuff, and it's like, okay, next, next chapter, next chapter. And we can be just like these guys to where we hear about what he's going to do on our behalf to die for our sins, and there's no response or reaction from us. It's like, oh yeah, what do I got to do after that? Because these guys, again, Jesus is saying, hey, in two days is the Passover. They're probably going, yeah, of course. And I will be handed over, betrayed, delivered up. Now, it's quite possible that the disciples couldn't believe that anything like that would happen to Jesus. They've heard it before. But there's no way it's going to happen in two days. Because now he's giving them like this, this little timetable. No, it's like right around the corner, peeps. It's going to happen right now. And they're going, couldn't. It just couldn't happen. Everything's been going good. 
Ministry is great. We're, we're here to celebrate the Passover. Why would they think of, why would you think of that right now? So it's, it's, it's quite possible that they're just thinking it, 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 wouldn't, it wouldn't happen like this. Not in this time. Not with the Passover right upon us. And they probably didn't remember the words that John the Baptist had shared when the ministry first started three and a half years ago. And two of his disciples that were walking with John the Baptist are now in the, the, the group with Jesus. They, they are forgetting what John the Baptist said a couple of years ago. Because oh, that was so long ago, right? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and, and Jesus is tying all of this in with the Passover. Because he is the Lamb of God. He is the one that will be sacrificed. He's tying it all in together. And these guys are going, I don't think it's going to happen. But what these guys had, had, had no clue of what was happening was that the religious leaders, they have been planning this. They have been plotting to kill Jesus for a while. It's interesting because the religious leaders, they didn't even think they'd be doing it around this time. Nobody thought that that's what's going to happen. But Jesus is telling them exactly what's going to happen in a few days, in a couple of days. You see, it was on the agenda for these religious leaders for quite a while. Ever since he came on the scene and they were threatened by the way he was ministering to the people, the common people were listening to him. People were being drawn away from, from the old into the new, and these guys were being threatened. So it's been on their agenda for a while. And they're even thinking, not around this time. There's so much stuff going on. But it's on the agenda nonetheless. And so in verse 3 to 5, he says that the chief priest and the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery to kill him. And they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So now, could it be that these verses here that I just read are also in chronological order as well? We don't know if the religious leaders got together on that Tuesday evening to plot his demise. It's quite possible. They have been planning this for quite a while. And it's, again, can you imagine these religious leaders getting together at the palace and something that's on the agenda is, how do we kill this guy? Can you imagine? If I came up to you on a Sunday morning, it's like, you know, we just had a board meeting yesterday. In our, our board, and and we just made a decision to kill a, to kill one of the guys, and you're probably going, hmm, I wonder who, because <laughs> you're probably going, I've I have a few in mind, of people that I wouldn't mind you killing off. Wouldn't that be kind of crazy that a pastor would stand here and say, hey, people, we've been praying. It's on our agenda. It was on the books. It, 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 it wasn't a top priority, but it was on their agenda in our board meeting. We had to talk about this, this, and how do we kill somebody from our church or somebody outside the church. Again, you would, you would think that would be asinine. That would be nuts that religious people would be in a place that they are conspiring, plotting how they might be able to kill someone. 
Now, the reason why I don't believe that this portion here that, that we veer off from here and it's not chronological is because when you go to John chapter 12 in the correlating story and we will get there in just a bit we he tells us that this this incident is happening six days before the Passover but this is what they say in John 12 9 and uh, 9 to 11 it says now a great many of the Jews knew that he Jesus was there and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. And so I shared with you a while back, when we were entering into the Passion Week, which was months ago, um, in our text, I, I, I told you that in this instance, this Passover was just a little different. There was a buzz about this Passover, not just because of what we know now, that this would be the final Passover that God would recognize. They didn't realize that. The buzz was that Jesus of Nazareth had raised someone from the dead in that general area. And so you could imagine that when people, when the word came out, because it's estimated there was probably about two weeks before the Passover that Lazarus had been raised from the dead. So there was this buzz going on. No, really, man, there's a guy that's going to be there. He raised somebody from the dead, and maybe we could see that cat that was dead, and now he's alive. And so there was this buzz around there. And, and so when they're all gathered together, it says that the chief peace, priests and, and many Jews, they came, they wanted to see who this guy Lazarus was, who once was dead and now he was alive. And so the fame of Jesus has now gone out and there's more people looking for this Jesus of Nazareth. And yet the religious leaders they're, they're on the warpath, man. They want this guy dead. And not just him, but that guy too. Let's kill him again. We can't stand it that these people are now walking away from what we normally do to follow after this guy. Now you would think that with all the hundreds of of thousands of people, and some estimate that, that it could have gone into a million people that have now converged on Jerusalem around Passover, because if you were a good Jew, you always made it to Passover, and so it just swelled. You would think that with all that's going on, and, and you're planning the Passover, and you're planning all this the, the animals that are going to get slaughtered, all the stuff that's going on and blah, 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 and this and that, you would think that the religious leaders would be preparing themselves for everything that's going on. And whether it was two days away or six days away before Passover, you would think that their main concern would be all this other stuff that has to do with the temple and all these things, but no. As they are assembled together, whether it was two days or six days, they are at the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, saying, how do we get rid of Jesus? And by get rid of him, I mean kill him. And not just Jesus, but let's do that to, to, uh, to uh, Lazarus as well. Matthew tells us that they plotted. Mark says that they sought 
to do this. Which means that they were all the while seeking to get rid of Jesus and doing that by trickery. <laughs> Again, these are religious leaders. The word trickery means by decoy, a trick, bait, i.e. figuratively wild, as in wily coyote, wild. Craft, deceit, guile. That's them. That's who these guys are as they are plotting to do this. So this wasn't some spur-of-the-moment decision on their part that all of a sudden it's like, we just got to get rid of them. No, they, this is premeditated. They've been planning this for quite some time. When Jesus first got on the scene, they were already wondering, how do we do this? How do we get rid of this guy? Too many people are seeking after him. And so even during his time in ministry, they were seeking, how can we get rid of him? And by get rid of him, kill him. And so like with, with religious leaders like that, who needs Satan around, right? Satan is probably just going, dude, they're doing good without me. They're okay. I could just kick it somewhere else in another part of the world because these guys, I mean, J Satan's been wanting to get rid of Jesus from, from eternity, you know? He's always hated Jesus in that sense. But, man, these religious leaders are going, hey, no problem. We got it. We'll take care of that. But these religious leaders, they didn't want to do it during the feast. And you would think, You would think <clears throat> that they are not wanting to do this during the feast of, of, of Passover because it's a holy thing. You would think that that, that, should, that should be their heart, man. This is a, a solemn moment. It's a holy time that is right before us. Oh, my gosh, it's going to be amazing. You would think they would be preparing themselves, but they feared the people. No, they really didn't even feel the fear of the people here, it says. It, 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 they feared an uproar. They feared a, a riot, if you will, from the people. Because they were so divided in this. I'm sure people are saying, not right now, man. You can't do that to this guy. This guy just raised this other guy from the dead. Man, What they feared was a riot in the Roman government who had also <clears throat> brought more troops in because of all the people. They wouldn't take too kindly to some kind of riot going on. <clears throat> to have that many people, and if they have to jump in, <laughs> If the Roman government or army has to take action, there would be blood tonight. It would be a not a lot war. Now, verses 6 through 13, this is talking about an incident that had taken place about the Friday before Jesus comes in on the Sunday on the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Both Matthew and Mark 
insert this story as a contrast of what this woman does and what Judas does as all this plotting is going on. The Gospel of Luke leaves out the story of the woman. But the Gospel of, of, of John, he ends up leaving out all that Judas does. And so in verse 6, where it says, And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flax, a very costly fragrant oil. And she poured it on the head of Jesus as he sat at the table. <clears throat> Matthew and Mark, they leave out all the names except for Simon the leper who is now healed, by the way. I hope you understand that, because he wouldn't be able to be in the house. <clears throat> John, well, Matthew does tell us that, uh, where am I at? Um, Mark tells us that there was some who were indignant, but in our text that we read in Matthew, he tells us that it was his disciples who were indignant. But when we go over to the Gospel of of John, he is like a major name dropper. And he drops every name in the book that is there. And he gives us so much information. And that's why I wanted to go over to John chapter 12 so we can read that portion. And so now you can turn over there. You can let your neighbor have his finger back if you want. <clears throat> but it says in verse 1 to verse 11 of John chapter 12, again, talking about the same incident. It says, then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was who, was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him <clears throat> a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped, her, her, wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box. And he used to, ta and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for, my, for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always. But me you do not always have. Verse 9. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he, Jesus, was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. <clears throat> And so if we, if we can speculate a little bit, um, some believe that Simon the leper, who is mentioned here, was the father of these three 
family, the, the, these three guys, uh, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Some also speculate that it could be possible that Simon the leper was Martha's husband, and that's why they are in his house. But there are still others who believe that maybe he just invited them all over to his house and that he was some kind of a relative to them because we do see Martha serving there. Be that as it may, however they're attached to this guy, that's whose house they are in. We see Martha serving the Lord. We see Lazarus having communion and or fellowship with the Lord. And we see Mary worshiping the Lord. In other words, she is paying the Lord his due. And as I look at that picture in John chapter 12, man, it's just such a beautiful picture of how we as Christians should be like that we should be serving and having communion or fellowship with the Lord and worshiping the Lord. That we should be in that place. And that's a great example for us of where we should be as believers. And so we focus on Mary because now the name is given to us that the woman in our story, in our text, is actually Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And so she is the main focus. And it's interesting because when we see Mary... She is at the right place. She is at the needful place. She is at the only place, and that is at the feet of Jesus. Now, Matthew does tell us that she poured the oil on his head. But Jesus said, she has poured it on my body. So John says that it was his feet, and so both can be true at the same time. Now, Mary is only mentioned three times basically, three other times throughout the gospel. And all three times we see her in one way or another at the feet of Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, verse 39, we see her sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his words while his sis her sister Martha is being Martha and serving all over the place. Uh, and, and she is in that right place. And Jesus says, don't take that away from me. In John chapter 11, we see her at the feet of Jesus, and she is grieving when her brother Lazarus dies. If you could only have been here, Lord. In John chapter 12, verse 3, what we just covered, she is at the feet of Jesus, and she is worshiping. And most of the time when we see someone throughout the, the Word of God, especially in the Gospels here, that they are at the feet of Jesus. They are there because they are in need. And they have to have, or they need to have their needs met. But she is there to give him his due. She is there to worship him. <clears throat> Mary brings this alabaster flax, which was a very costly uh, flax. In, in, in not just the outward, but even what's going to be inside of it. Again, the other Gospels don't tell us, but John tells us that it was worth 300 denarii. 300 denarii would be a year's wages. How much would that be today? Well, looking up the median income of Phelan, it is somewhere around 53,500. Can you imagine that? One year's wages, boom, right here for you, 
This, this could possibly have been her dowry, what she had been saving up for. But she knew that at this time, it was time to give it to Jesus and pour it onto Jesus. And this picture that she is giving us here is that she is giving the very best. And just like King David, Mary was not going to give to the Lord that which had cost, cost her nothing. She was giving it her all. <laughs> Some might be thinking, please, Pastor, don't be telling us to give, us a year, give you a year's wages right now. <laughs> well, that's the direction I was going to go. That was my next point. I was going to pivot that direction. Say, come on, let's do it. <laughs> but think about the scene here and why she is doing what she's doing. She sees her brother having communion, being at the table with Jesus. That was priceless. He had been dead. She saw him dead. She grieved over his death. He had been dead for four days, four stinking days, and I'm telling you, stinking. Four days. For her to be able to see this whole scene happening at this moment, to see her brother very much alive, I'll give it all. Her heart was so grateful to have this scene that she could see, and she's not mourning, she's, she's rejoicing. And in that rejoicing, she just gives it all, and she holds nothing back to the Lord. She gives him everything, everything she had, everything of worth. Whatever she had, she was going, now is the time to go get it and put it at his feet and pour it all over him. To break this thing and do it all. Because this, this, this flax was sealed, and it was only opened once because the way they, they made it, they put, however they did, but they sealed it up. And once you broke it off, you're done with that. Something that was so priceless was now broken and poured over Jesus. As she broke the top off, it revealed the content of what was in there. And the content that was in there was something that was just as precious as the flax. This spikenard, this, this perfume oil that was imported from India. Something that was so precious and expensive as I was thinking about it. You know how people are into the essential oils now? They're pretty penny from what I find out. But this act of worship that, 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 that she's performing was such a beautiful, it just released this beautiful fragrance, man. And, and, and it not only blessed the whole house, but it, it, but it has, this act has spread not only through the house, but through the room and, and throughout the world. This beautiful act. Because Jesus said of this act that whenever the gospel is preached, she, Mary, and this act would be uh, remembered as a memorial to her. And we have fulfilled that prophecy this morning once again. As Jesus said, every time it's, this is talked about, she will be remembered. And what a beautiful picture of worship. That he remembers all of that. And he says, this is such a beautiful act that this woman came and gave me her all. And from here on out, everybody will know about this act of worship. Mary had given her best. And Jesus said, she has done a good work. 
Mark in his gospel says that, that Jesus said that she, she has done what she could. And yet, Judas calls it a waste. Saying that it should have been sold and all that month's, all that year's wages, 50 grand. You know what we could have done with 50 grand? To give to the poor. And it sounds really spiritual, right? But Mary's priorities were right on track. She loved the Lord. Again, looking at what she can see, and, and, and she's just so, like, enthralled. She's saying, he is worth every ounce of it. And I don't think she hesitated that day. When she saw what she got to see, and she just breaks this open and starts pouring it on, and I could, I could, I could guarantee she could care less what Judas thought. She knew what she was doing. And don't ever let anyone tell you that anything you do for Jesus is a waste. Because this is never a waste. Because there are people that look at you and all of a sudden, all of a sudden you're involved and you're doing stuff at church or you're reading at home or you're not doing what you used to do and you sit at home and read your Bible and stuff. It's like, what a waste. You're wasting your life. Don't ever let anybody put that guilt trip on you. Or to even to go the other way, well, you should have done more. It's like, don't trip people out like that. Jesus said, man, she, she did a good work and she did what she could. He says, why do you trouble her? And I love the fact that he comes to her defense. She has done a good work. She did or she has done what she could. Jesus says, she's done this for my burial. In other words, she understood what the rest of the disciples didn't understand. That he would be dying soon, very soon. Again, when you look at this whole scene, I talked about how, how again, she's looking at her brother who once was dead, and he is very much alive in this whole thing. I'm sure she remembered Simon as a leper. Whoever this guy was, at one point in his life, and I believe that Jesus was the one that touched him, he was separated from his family. And leprosy is often a, a type of sin, that sin had, had separated this man. And what she is seeing now is somebody who, who couldn't be, be drawn in is, is now drawn in to the fellowship. So again, picture this whole scene, that she has seen someone who was dead but now alive. Dead in his trespasses and sins, but he has been made alive. Someone who was separated because of his sin, but now he is cleansed and brought in. And nothing, nothing else is on her mind but giving Jesus her all and worshiping. That's all she could do. There was nothing else she could give because she had given it all. There was nothing left in the tank for her. She emptied it all the way. And her heart was in the right place. But where was Judas's heart in all of this? Well, in John 12, 6, it tells us where his heart was at. It says this, he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box. And he used to take what was put in it. It kind of fascinates me. Because Judas 
this guy who had been around for three and a half years, and yet the disciples did not know his true character. You see, he played the part. He said the right things. He fit in very, very well. So much so that the Gospels tell us about this story, that the disciples, they agreed with him when he said, what a waste. They said, yeah, it is. You're right. And he's going, man, that money could have been, been you know, it could have been sold and we could have put more money in there. You're right. You're a little snake, man. The guy kept on ripping them off. That's what he had been doing. He didn't care about the poor. And John, as he writes his gospel, he writes it way later after the other gospels. And so he's writing it in retrospect. And so when he, he says, as he tells us what, why Judas wanted the money, because the guy was a thief. His heart was not in the right place. Using it for the poor. Whatever. This rebuke, though, that Jesus gives him, why do you trouble the woman or leave her alone? Why do you come after her? This rebuke might have contributed to him selling Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver because he was greedy. Because it's right after this that he goes and strikes a deal with the religious leaders, the high priests. And in spite of his affiliation with these guys, with, with the disciples, in spite of his association with Jesus, Judas was not a true believer. He was a hangaround, if you will. But he wasn't a true believer. When Jesus would wash the disciples' feet in a couple days in the upper room, he made it clear to them that one of them, Judas, was not cleansed. But it goes all the way back to John chapter 6, where he says, hey, do you guys want to split? And they're going, where else shall we go? He says, well, you, I didn't, you didn't choose me, but I chose you, but one of you is the devil. A devil. And like many professing Christians, today Judah, Judas was in the group of believers, but he was not of them. So why would Judas follow Jesus for three years? Why would he listen to, to the words of Jesus? Why would he share in the ministry and then turn to be a traitor? And we may never know for sure why. But one thing is certain, Judas was not a victim of circumstances here. He wasn't this passive tool of providence. In other words, he couldn't help it. Somebody had to turn Jesus in. Somebody had to betray him. Oh, it was prophesied that someone close to the Messiah associated with him would betray him. But this fact does not relieve Judah, Judas of this responsibility. And we must not make him a martyr as some religions do. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 55, 12 to 14, it says, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me, who is exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion, and my acquaintance, 
He took, we took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of the Lord in the throngs. And so while we may never fully understand why Judas would do something like this, why his heart and his mind had gotten to this place, we do know that he had every opportunity to repent and be saved. He was warned by Jesus in the upper room. Again, he even washed his feet. More than likely, Judas, in seeing Jesus and his hopes that maybe he is the one that will free them from the Roman tyranny that they were under. Maybe, again, not capturing the spiritual part of it, but the physical part, that maybe this is the one, the Messiah, that will finally free us from the Romans and set his kingdom up here on earth. Judas being the treasurer, he would have had a prominent position. But the fact that Jesus repeatedly kept on rebuffing and refusing this political stuff that was going on because he came for a different purpose to save man from their sin, it is quite possible that that is when he just started getting disillusioned with Jesus and what Jesus had for him. Satan found a willing tool in Judas. Satan put it into, into Judas's mind to betray him, as it says in John chapter 13, verse 2. And then he entered into Judas to use him to betray Jesus to his enemies in John 13, 20, 27. Judas's life is a warning to those who pretend to serve Jesus, but their hearts are far from him. And I think oftentimes we, we, we have to check ourselves to see if we are in the faith as it tells us in 2 Corinthians. Are we truly in the faith? Because there are those people who play the part, who look the part, who say the part, who say everything right, and yet they are not walking with Jesus. And so this is a warning as well. His life is a warning to us that, that we wouldn't waste opportunities, that we wouldn't waste our lives following after other things instead of Jesus or pretending to do that, but our hearts are so far away. And so why this waste, Judas said? As he saw the, the, the oil being poured out, and yet Judas wasted his life. Judas wasted every opportunity. Judas uh, wasted his soul. Jesus called him the son of perdition in John 17, 12, which literally means son of waste. And so in pouring out this oil on his body, maybe Mary understood what the rest of the disciples kept on missing, that Jesus would not be around forever. He kept telling his disciples that he would die, but maybe that day where they missed it, Jesus, uh, Mary saw his face. He saw it in his face, saw it in his eyes, saw it in his smile that something was up. And she wasn't going to hold back. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that, that the poor were not important, and he wasn't saying that they wouldn't be taken care of. They would always have the opportunity to help the poor. But Jesus wouldn't be around in a week or so. And so in verse 14 of our text, going back to Matthew 26, verse 14, it says, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, 
went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. And so Matthew finally mentions the perpetrator. It was Judas. And I would say that Judas was probably one of the most trusted of all of them. I like the way Gail Irwin describes Judas or what people think that he looked like, that he was this beady-eyed kind of guy, hunchback. <laughs> you know, he probably wasn't. He was probably somebody who was really trusted. Somebody like this, looking like this. Again, he probably wasn't looking like a monster or some evil villain. He was probably someone that they all trusted going, man, if we could trust anybody. We can't trust Peter. We can't trust those guys. But we could trust Judas. And yet he is the one that betrays Jesus. All scripture does tell us in Zechariah 11:12 12, that it was prophesied that the Messiah would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. And that is what Matthew tells us. That that's how much he got for Jesus. Judas sold his master for the same price that a slave was worth, according to Exodus 21:32. Jesus did say that he would be delivered up. But Judas was all more was more than willing. And because of his greed, he went and asked, What will you give me? if I deliver him up to you, if I betray him. And we might think, man, how could Judas sell out Jesus like that? But I would have to say, I think sometimes we sell out Jesus for a lot less in our lives. We sell him, sell him out for a lot less, but we don't want to give him our all. Or we don't give him our best. Or we just half-step in and following after him. And we're going, no, I'll give you everything. Not now, later on. And we're not willing to break off that flack and say, it's, I'm pouring it all out. Oh, we see a big contrast here between the treachery of, of Judas and the religious leaders and where their hearts were at. But we also see the love and the loyalty of Mary and her family and where their hearts were at. See, Jesus knew what was coming down. He, he knew that his hour was up. He knew that he had come for this very purpose. And he was okay with all of that. He understood that. But as I look at not just our text here, but going over to John chapter 12, as I look at that family, that they were workers for sure, that they were witnesses all the time. But truly, man, they were worshipers at the same time, all the time. Amen? And so let us not waste our lives like Judas. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for your faithfulness, Lord. We thank you for your word that is powerful, Lord. God, there is so much in this portion. Lord, I pray that whatever you had me share today, Lord God, was what my brothers and sisters needed to hear, to challenge them, to encourage them. Father, I also pray and if there's anyone in this room today, right now, that does not know you, Lord, Father, they have never repented of their sins. They have never come to know you on a personal level, Lord. And maybe they're just plain religion. And yet, Lord God, they're like Judas, Lord. 
their hearts are far from you. And I pray that this morning, if you've drawn them here, drawn them here, that this morning, Lord, they would make that decision to follow after you. And while we're praying, you, brother, sister, if there's someone here that does not know Jesus or you've been so far away that you can relate to the religious people that being so far away, that today you would be drawn close. If there's anyone like that, I just want to pray for you. Whether it's your first time accepting the Lord or you're just so far away that you can't even call yourself a Christian. Is there anyone today that would raise their hand and say, Pastor, please pray for me. Amen. Can I see your hand? Father, that you would just truly, Lord, by your spirit, draw them close. That, Lord, even, Lord God, as they have their hands raised, Lord God, that they would understand that right now you have forgiven them. That they would be asking for forgiveness. And that, God, you would just remind them of your salvation and your goodness. That you died on the cross for them. And that you would just, in the, in, in the powerful way, reveal to them the assurance of their salvation because of what you have done, not because of what they've done, but that you have done. And we thank you and we praise you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Let's stand as we sing this last song.